Hey, what's up everybody? Untenured Tracks is back. And this is going to be a big semester for us because we're gearing up for an expansion that honestly has been in the works for over a year. Beginning in January 2022, Untenured Tracks, in addition to being a podcast focusing on public scholarship, also becomes a magazine. We will be publishing works of fiction, creative nonfiction, and poetry, featuring Uh, podcast interviews with our authors. We'll also be branching out into mini conferences. Our first conference is coming up November 20th, 2021, the first Global Empire and Resistance Scholarship Conference. All of our work is free. I maintain a commitment to free and accessible public scholarship, both the magazine and the shift to online conferences and workshops is very much a part of that. If you would like to help contribute, make sure that we can keep all of our various feeds online, you can do so at patreon.com slash untenured. Now to this week's interview. This week, I am so very fortunate to have been able to spend time with Ramika Bingham Risher, faculty member at Wilkes University's graduate creative writing program about her work in poetry. This is episode 77 of Untenured Tracks. I mean, there's a few things, but I think the thing that's at the forefront of my mind that I'm excited about, uh, my first book of prose is coming out in June 2022. Um, it's called Soul Culture, Black Poets, Books and Questions That Grew Me Up. Um, and so for years, um, decades actually, uh, I was interviewing Black poets that I just really loved, like Lucille Clifton and Natasha Trethewey, Sonia Sanchez. Um, and was thinking I was going to compile those eventually into a book. I was publishing them in journals. Um, and because that project went on for so long, I started my own academic career and my own writing and started writing essays that kind of address some of the push-pull of, uh, you know, family life and academia and what's happening in the world around you and inspiration. Um, and so all of those over time during COVID, this is about the only good thing COVID gave me i decided i needed to kind of figure out what i was going to do with these things and reach out to an agent um do some queries and really put a proposal together and so uh, i was fortunate enough to do all those things and find an agent that's been extremely wonderful and helpful um and so beacon press is going to publish the book but it's morphed more into a memoir than a book of of interviews so some of the sprinklings of the interviews and those words of wisdom are scattered throughout Um, But it's really about my own writing life and and how these people have helped kind of guide me fastidiously all the way through to the point where I am now. So I'm excited about that. It's in copy edits. So that's the only thing on my mind right now. Uh, That's such an interesting transition for a project to go from something that's completely focused 
externally to you to now something that's much more yeah. looking inward. What was that transition like? Uh, scary as heck. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, um, the transition really came from the market. Um, you know, I'd heard for years, it's really hard to publish interviews. Mm -hmm. um, so you might want to think about that. And I thought, well, you know, the strength of these people's names, like who's not going to want to sit with what Lisa Clifton says for 10 pages? Like they're crazy. And all of that, I think is still true. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But I think interviews on their own out into the world, and these have made their way out into the world in ways I couldn't imagine, um, have been very successful, but still getting an editor interested mm -hmm. in just a block of interviews was not something that we were having any success with. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so for a long time, I was just thinking that I was writing these essays as kind of a buffer between the interviews, but the essays sort of morphed into the larger scope of things. They created a really nice kind of contextual narrative for like why these folks were so important in my life and how um, writing um, and the muse kind of morphs over time. And so the essays just started becoming the bigger, the larger part than the interview. So um, kicking and screaming and reluctantly, I kind of moved um, into a prose space that I had no idea I was moving into, um, but I'm terribly, terribly happy. Um, with how the book has turned out. Um, and I'm excited to just, hopefully it'll just spur more conversations about how we really need to like care for and respect these elders and community and how much they really do for us over time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and I think it's important too for any students listening to this or watching yeah. this to see that uh, projects evolve over time. And, oh my and, goodness. And may take time, right? Yeah, I hope for, for my poor students, I hope not decades on every project. Um, you know, this is my fourth book. So, you know, my first three books were books of poems. Um, and maybe that's why it was kind of a kicking and screaming transition, because I'm still in my mind steadfastly a poet. Um, so to be doing a, a full book of prose, a full book of nonfiction um, was just kind of something that I hadn't envisioned for myself in that way. Mm -hmm. um, but I find that it's been extremely useful to be flexible right and to find play into your strengths wherever they are certainly as a poet i'm a very narrative one mm -hmm. um and people saw that as a strength and said let's play into that a little bit more so hopefully if students get nothing else out of that just know uh be patient things change and stay flexible yeah yeah um it's it's so important to be flexible and and to play yeah. to your strengths right and because yeah. that requires you to be honest with yourself and if you're not being honest with yourself you can't really be a very good writer. <laughs> yes, yeah. You can, you can be a writer, but a bad one. <laughs> and, yeah, and we don't need any more bad writers. That's right. That's right. And one thing that you said that was interesting was um, just how working on this project has, has caused you to think about how um, the muse morphs over time. Mm. And so I think that's something that people would want to hear you talk more about is because that's, so, that's very profound. Oh, well, I'm a poet, so that's what I do. No, just kidding. <laughs> it's, you know, it's funny that you pick up on that. Like, that's not um, a phrase that I probably uttered before, but I for sure um, think it's true. Um, I'm, as a poet, I'm very much uh, about research and reading, you know, feeding the well to get something out of the well. Um, it's kind of my process for any kind of writing. Um, and I think for sure, 
I thought that I was just gathering as much information from these poets as I could over the years, and that's true. But thinking about how that information lodged in me, mm-hmm. how they became libraries themselves, um, and then articulating some of that and thinking about how that translates and transfers into my own writing process was not something that I had explicitly thought about. Um, so this book helped me really think about how the muse shifts over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's something that is really important for us to think about, not just as writers, but I mean, we're both academics too, right? And so yeah. thinking about how what we research affects us yes. um, because um, at, at least in my my experience, right, there's this drum beat of objectivity uh, that's that's not really, really a thing. Um, yeah. And you cannot have a, a career like this and not be affected by your work. And so yeah. taking that chance to step back and think about like, what is this, what has this done to me? How has this, how has this changed me is. Yes. Is that was, a, you know, that was absolutely um, kind of the crux of the question that I had for myself. <laughs> so that's why it, you know, ended up being the question of the book. You know, how did this shift who I was? And on the ground, like if I had to map that for someone, if I had to give them ideas about how my working with Tim Siebels has helped me think about revision or, you know, how my work with Ethelbert Miller helped me reimagine the home space and reimagine place. Um, you know, those were certainly not things that I had thought through on my own, but this gave me the opportunity and the space and time to really articulate a lot of that, which I'm grateful for. So I, I have to ask, um, how do you how do you think you've changed over the course of this this project? Oh, man, well, I got old. Not <laughs> <laughs> get old. Um, you know, really, like life changes linked to you know changes in who you are as an artist. Um, you know, the coupling of those things. So, you know, this project really did happen. I interviewed writers over kind of a decade and a half. So, and in that same time, I was going through graduate school. I was an MFA candidate, like our students are. Um, I was getting my first teaching job. I got married. I became a step parent. Uh, you know, so like all of these huge life changes were happening at the same time. So I had to uh, reinvent time and space for writing right? Um, Like carve it out of nothingness. (laughs) Um, And that, you know, plays into, you know, how, how I wrote and how, um, uh, what I was writing in my projects, you know, my second book with Etruscan, What We Ask of Flesh, you know, my husband um, always says, oh, that's your poet's book, because I was doing all these ideas with form. Um, I was thinking very much about violence and fear, because I was a young woman buying my first house and living alone. And then so, so much of that played into the things that arrested me um, in the work and the things that are the questions I was trying to map out for myself. And then my third book, the book that came after that seven years later is Starlight and Error. And it's all love poems because that's what happened over time. You know what I mean? My husband found my poetry website and uh, we got married nine months later. So, um, you know, he was my eighth grade boyfriend and then we found each other and then got married nine months later. I have to lose in touch for about 15 years. So I tell my students, you know, poetry can also get you hitched. So watch out. Um, <laughs> but, you know, so those, the shift in my own personal narrative, but also just the things that I was interested in writing were oftentimes really about 
um, the things that I was living and how, um, you know, shifting experiences kind of changes the stuff you go back to in your work. I was going to say, I, I always like it when uh, titles for these interviews uh, come organically from the conversation. Oh, and so first okay. I was like reinventing time and space for writing on uh, that's perfect. And then now in parentheses, poetry can also get you hitched. <laughs> oh, come on. Absolutely. <laughs> that's it. Right there. Because if you, if you don't listen after that, then you just, you're just a boring person because you're not nosy like I am. I want to know about people's business. <laughs> We're going to get a flood of applications now. David is going to be. That's right. They're going to be like, listen, you said it. (laughs) Do for me. I'm not lying. Not lying. Um, So I'm curious, since since you you brought up um, your students, what's it like teaching poetry? Uh, This is a super super broad question, but I'm like, I'm, my experience with poetry has come exclusively through the, through Wilkes. Um, It's not my academic background at, at all. So I'm, I'm always kind of curious i think for my own just my own curiosity like what's it like to teach me what you, what you do um you know I, I that it really is a big question but really it's fantastic i think students that are drawn to poetry are like you know inquisitive about the world at large and they're trying to find ways to compartmentalize just the things they see in the world. For me, you know, all of my poems, I think, are kind of a snapshot of a moment. Um, You know, they might expand beyond that, you know, in certain ways. But really, I'm trying to do the same thing. Now, some people come to poetry because they're trying to find answers to questions, but that's never served me. So something that I reiterate to my students is I come to poetry so I can articulate the question. And once I have the question articulated, I feel a little better about it in my spirit. Um, but that's not, that's not the answer. <laughs> you know, I, I go to those answers for things broader than even poems. Um, and so often though, I have students who are coming because they are inquisitive about the world and they are open to finding answers in any way possible. So they let me give them exercises that really shake up the subconscious. You know, poetry is probably the only class where you can, you know, have students do a a five part exercise that starts with writing a letter to themselves and folding it into three places and putting it under their mattress and coming back to it two weeks later and linking that to Lucille Clifton and pulling out Rita Duff. And people just say, okay. Right. Like they'll do they'll do whatever you ask um, if you if you build in that trust. Now, I'm also one of those people um, that's known to get students really good work out of a class, meaning because I'm thinking very deeply about to help them, how to help them focus on imagery, how to help them focus on not just the idea that you start in your own head, but like craft so that you're articulating that in the best way possible that you know how in that moment. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm a strident revisionist. Every poem that I write goes through, you know, probably 30 or 40 revisions. Um, so when students come to me, oftentimes they come in with a notebook full of poems that they kind of got an idea down for, scribbled down and never went back to. Uh, but that's not how we leave it. Right. Uh, that first spark is just that a spark It's the play that we start with. And I, I help them think about now how do you mold this into something that can be useful for yourself and others? Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's another um, important part of your process, right? That that students uh, need to understand, and and that's not something that's unique to you, but to, to any successful writer and artist is that revision, yes, revision, revision. Everybody thinks that the yeah. first draft is like that is definitely a mountain to climb, right? But 
But it's a little bitty mountain. You got a whole you got a whole range that you got to get over. Yeah. Right? Like this mountain range yep. that you're going to have to scale to make it to a place where this is, um, you know, something that is useful beyond that first lightning bolt um, mm-hmm. of inspiration. So I'm, I'm wondering about the difference between answering the question and articulating it. How, how are you able to get students to kind of, I guess appreciate the difference between those two points and then for those students who who are in college thinking like i need to have everything i believe confirmed (laughs) for me how Mm. how do how do they respond to being told that you don't even know how to ask the question yet oh that's an interesting question well one you know i definitely don't tell them right off the bat (laughs) (laughs) right um and i also you know i think it's fine for you to believe your process is I am writing these poems to answer something inside myself. That's not why I'm writing poems. And I've come to that very specifically Mm -hmm. over time. And I share my process a lot with students. So they start to understand what I mean by that. Um, But helping them to understand that everything isn't answerable, that like, you know, this uh, first year poetry class is not going to help you know who you are in 15 weeks, um, or this graduate poetry class is not going to help you know who you are um, in two years, right? Um, And so I think for sure, I'm opening them up to... um, One, questioning many things uh, over and over, questioning what they know. And then my real aesthetic is teaching empathy. So I'm really trying to find ways for them to explore um, the lives of others, but also see more than one perspective to everything that they're doing. Um, So sometimes we're doing persona poems where we're stepping into the shoes of other people or places or things, um, you know, they might step into the shoes of an iguana for a, for a persona poem, and that might change them into an eco poet, you know, of sorts in that space, right? Um, but I'm I'm really like really and truly something that I've been focusing on a lot lately. Um, I've also been teaching a class um, outside of Wilkes um, that focuses on uh, women writing Black Lives Matter um, and like contemporary Black women poets and like what they're trying to do in this space which is really just trying to help students um, each day in that class to wrestle with what it means to be a marginalized person and what you could take from that experience that might help you be a better person in the larger world. That's a whole lot to ask of poems, but I really truly believe like poems have helped me understand different perspectives in that way. Yeah, and so my training is in sociology. Hey. And so now we're on like the same wavelength, right? Because That's right. <laughs> a, <laughs> everything in my classes is about trying to get students to understand the role of power in society and, and That's all right. the different ways that power has manifest itself. And, Come and, on, and privilege and agency. That's yes. what I go back to constantly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so th- that's one of the reasons why this program has been such a, a really honestly a blessing from, from my professional life is that it's given me this whole new toolbox um, to, to bring into my classroom to say, let's, let's think about um, different mm, perspectives, let's say, perspectives on justice and how, yeah. how is justice used as a form of oppression in, in not just the United States, but around the world, right? Yes. Um, and that's why I asked the question about uh, how do you handle students who just want college to confirm what they already know? Because this is something that I 
Uh, unfortunately, you have quite a bit. Yeah. Um, my question is, so your real question is, how do I break the break them down once yeah. they get into my class? <laughs> like seriously, though. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. I mean, um, you know, something that I, I lead with in these classes often is, you know, telling students just how much, you know, I came to school as a um, first gen. Uh, college student, uh, you know, so the experience was for me was just completely different than anyone else had experienced around me. Um, and I, I feel like I grew exponentially every semester. So I was a different person <laughs> by the time the end of that first semester, freshman year, the end of the second semester, sophomore year, you know, I changed exponentially over time. So I don't downplay that for them. Um, what I do help them understand is um, the reason that you change exponentially is because you're questioning everything you know. Yep. Um, and by questioning everything you know, that doesn't mean I'm going against everything I know or every person I know. That doesn't mean now, you know, you have to go home and say, well, you know what, mom, you can wash my laundry at Thanksgiving, but I don't trust you at all anymore because you've taught me all the wrong things. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, you know, we all come to what we understand and our parents and our grandparents uh, and, you know, our, our elementary school teachers mm -hmm. and our pastors. And our, we all come to some understanding based on our own experience. Well, now you're having your own experience and your own eye opening um, kind of a purview um, that's really helping you to engage with the world, particularly through books and, and kind of understanding. And so I really push them to question you know if 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 it's still there it'll be fine once you question it or not <laughs> right um and if it isn't that's okay too like doesn't mean the world is over it just means your view your perspective has changed and maybe you have a better perspective so you can help someone else's change later on mm -hmm. yeah i i in the past i've had students um do some version of an assignment where they compare themselves in the present to who they were when they were 14 Ooh, and that's for, a good reflection for the especially for like the juniors and seniors yeah just the look of horror right <laughs> that comes over their faces and and then being able to tell them okay like that feeling that you have right now um if i were to come and see you when you're 30 that's and say right. how have you changed since you were a college senior you would have that same look of horror probably like times 10 <laughs> right. well, i do you know uh, part of my my other other job, good gracious, there's a lot of them around here. I direct a, a, a writing and faculty development program at Old Dominion University. And my big bent on campus, everybody knows me as the reflection person, right? When I step into a workshop, we're going to reflect on something. Um, and for students, you know, the, I build that into reflection in, in, you know, myriad ways. But something that I always ask them to do at the very beginning of the semester is to kind of reflect on the things that brought them here and what they might be able to take with them, what they think they know. And then they do the exact same reflection at the end of the semester. And they're like, my God, like to track what I've learned. But having them, you know, think about reflection beyond like who they were, a kind of pre, <laughs> right? And then a post, like who you might be. Yeah. It's a fantastic way to get them to think about growth. Mm -hmm. um, not only growth, but like self-care in the middle of yeah. growth. Right? Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's another one of the things that I've been working a lot on, um, you know, goal setting and then like what that means in the larger sense, not just thinking about, you know, the traditional goal setting, like, will I get a job? Will I have money? Well, will your heart be taken care of? How do we plan for that? Right. Yeah. And it's a, it's a, good way to to get them 
to, I think, voluntarily think about some stuff that at least I can't come out and ask them about, especially not in class, right? Yes. It's a way for them to think about, like, so the the joke that I'll make with them is, you know, that the person that broke up with them when they were 14 and they thought was that this was the end of the world and I'm never going to love again. And now as a, a 20 or 21 year old college senior, um, how silly that, that must seem. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, but then certainly there are, are obviously much more profound um, and traumatizing experiences that happened during that, that pen of that, that span of life. Um, yeah. that, it gives them the chance to think about and say, well, what actually did this do to me? Um, right. And then on the flip side, right. Like how did, like you were talking about how did meeting all these, how, how did meeting this person my freshman year of college, my first year of college affect and just what, what was, what was the meteoric impact that this person had on yeah. my life and all, in all these good ways. Yeah. Um, Thinking so. about your, your question of power, something mm-hmm. I ask students all the time is, you know, who holds the power in your communities, but how have you wrestled some of that power back over time? Right. And so in that instance, that would be a great way. Like this was the definitive <laughs> moment in your life in junior high, but how has, you know, continuing to wrestle some of that power yeah. back shifted who you've become. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that. And getting them to, to reframe some of those experiences in junior yeah. high and high school that where they, they thought they might've been in control. So I use like student government as a good example of that, right? Yeah. Um, where student government doesn't actually have a lot of power to do stuff, but the students are very much convinced that they it are. Feels like, right? It feels <laughs> yeah. like, right? It feels like being like secretary. The, the superintendent and the student body president. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and being able to kind of reflect back and say like, okay, well, but you didn't you know, you, you plan prom, but it was probably the same prom template that's been used in your school since the 1960s. Yeah. But then what was your role in, in interacting with like, you know, school resource officers, Mm. for example. Um, And then there's the, then that's when those, they have those eureka moments of like, Oh, I actually, now I'm going to look differently at, at security on campus. Right. And and what say did we have in that? Um, And just thinking about how power, creeps into their lives and they don't even realize it mm-hmm. into all of our lives for sure yeah yeah especially especially now um, yeah. so i wanted kind of to circle back to what you we were talking about um in terms of the the memoir um sure. and as you were able to reflect back on your own relationships with people like tim siebel's did you have any kind of or can you speak to any um, eureka moments that you had kind of reflecting back and saying like, I, I knew that this person was incredibly important to me, but I never really realized just how, how important. Do you have folks that you want to shout out in that sense? I mean, seriously, like there's 10 poets in the book. So there's, you know, 10 essays, but like every one of them, like it's, you know, that's very narrow. It's like, not like I only read 10 poets over my whole life. I read thousands of poets, like no exaggeration. Right. Um, But those 10 um, were people that I, and and then there are a few outside of them that I had to shout out in different places in the books as well. But the real, did I have Eureka moments? Like every other day, like, (laughs) because 
you know, you have your favorite writers. Like if somebody asks you right now in a questionnaire, you know, what's your favorite book of all time? What's your favorite writer? Like who, you know, and you'll, you'll be able to rattle a few of those off, right? Mm -hmm. And I always rattled them off, but I had not ever tracked why, right? Mm -hmm. Lucille Clifton is the poet of my heart. She's, she was a mentor of mine. Uh, she's a poet I push into people's hands all the time. You know, I interviewed her because I love her work. But in the uh, essay that I wrote in the book, uh, it's called Intimate Tending. Um, it's all about when I came to Lucille Clifton as a college freshman, right, as things were changing, you know, significantly in, in life, right? But also how all of the ideas, you know, she's a womanist poet. She's talking about bodies. Um, you know, she's raging against sons. She is, uh, you know, kind of like tearing down the patriarchy in any way imaginable. Um, and she's also a black woman poet that's like doing all of this stuff that I didn't even know was possible. Um, and so uh, when I went back to that and really traced that trajectory, I realized, oh, my God, like she taught me more about the body and sensuality and freedom in poems um, than anyone else did. And that's why I love her so much, not just because the poems are fantastic, but because she opened me up to a different kind of freedom that I didn't know was a possibility. And so as I'm writing about these other poets in the book, Forrest Hamer and Sonia Sanchez and Patricia Smith, my God, like, I mean, there's so many people who like shifted everything I thought was a possibility, everything I knew about writing and gave me another voice. Just gave me another um, tool for the toolkit. Uh, I'm never going to write poems, in, in my opinion, that are as good as any of those poets because they're the poets who shaped me, right? But for sure, you know, I've tried to capture um, how being open and, and free to try something new and also not being afraid to fail. Um, the poets taught me that. Patricia Smith in particular, you know, her essay uh, goes back to this odd trajectory she's had as a writer and as a human being um, and linked with, um, you know, a point in my life where I just felt completely stopped. A friend of mine was killed by police in 2014 in the middle of the Black Lives Matter movement, um, Romaine, Brisbane. And, um, you know, I was just completely stopped for a few weeks. Like I, I just, I couldn't do any of the things that were a comfort to me. And I went back to her life um, her trajectory as a writer, but also her living um, to just ask again and again, how do I restart? How do I restart? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that that idea too of uh, how do I phrase this? Making students aware that other things are possible yeah. is such an important part of teaching. Yeah. Um, across disciplines, right? Um, which I think sort of goes back a little bit to what I was talking about before was students coming into college and just wanting their, their own beliefs kind of confirmed. Um, mm -hmm. be, <laughs> like I, I struggle with, struggle with this all the time, right? Is students who think that things have always been this way and, and therefore will always be this way. Um, and then trying to challenge them in, in the smallest ways or introduce things to them in, in the smallest ways that kind of crack through that shell and say like, actually mm -hmm. a better world is possible and, and other things are possible. And just because we do things this one way doesn't mean 
they have to stay that, we, that. that it has to stay that way. And, and in fact, that's the worst <laughs> reason to keep things that way is if, if the only thing you can say is that's how it's always been done. Yeah. Um, and so I think like, it's really interesting to think about that as somebody who's not a poet, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> that there, there are poetry students who are having that similar kind of experience within, within their art form. Yeah. And then, you know, talking with you too, Andrew, like I, but whenever you talk to other academics, uh, you, you know, you realize so much of our experience, like in the classroom um, is shaped by our students, but also shaped by student backgrounds and just like context. So it's so funny, you know, my, my, my first real like hefty teaching gig was at Norfolk State University, which is right up the street from where I am, which is an HBCU. You know, many of those students uh, is a public institution. It's the largest HBCU on the coast, um, kind of open door policy. So a lot of those students were coming in, some with opinions um, and, and had like fully formed ideas uh, about certain things, but the vast majority were coming in eyes wide open because they were the first. They, were, they had no idea what to expect and what they were gonna be asked to challenge, right? Like, so it's a different, often a different subset of students, for real, you know, NSU and Wilkes are probably the opposite ends of the spectrum in many ways, as far as like the student body that, that we're seeing, right? Um, and, you know, ODU where I am now is a PWI, predominantly white institution. Um, but with a very like hefty mixture because we're in a military town. One third of our students are have some kind of connection to the military. Also, one third of our students are Pell Grant eligible. So we have like this real mix of students, student need, um, students who have moved all over the place time and time again, or have been tracked to different places. So they come with different experiences. But a lot of them too are first gen students. So it's not like they're coming in and I have to kind of beat out <laughs> them what they. No, they're coming in and I kind of have to beat into them that it's okay to ask questions and to yes. like shift, right? Yes. Um, yes. And so, so much of that, so much of that, you know, just deals with the, the, the you know, whatever hand we happen to be given in the place where we are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, our job always for sure, every time they step into a sociology classroom is to get them to see multiple perspectives, like in any way we can. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah. been a school for a while that's depended a lot on international students to kind of mm. support stuff. And a lot of them primarily came from Saudi Arabia and Kuwait. Um, that has kind of dried up some. Um, in, mm. the, in the past few years, we've had um, some success in recruiting students from Panama. Um, but unfortunately, the, the person responsible for that initiative left the university. So we have a few kind of lingering Panamanian cohorts, but I have no idea like what the status of those relationships are. I was sent to, to Panama twice to try to build stuff up, which was super interesting wow. um, to go to a, to go to and a just country. Because you guys have like a sister school there or like no, what's the, no, we had, so there was a woman who worked at Wilkes. She was basically hired because she knew anybody and everybody in Panama. Um, and uh, her job was to establish relationships with the programs at Wilkes and then universities around the country. Hmm. Um, and so for us, we first were sent to a school that I forget what it was called. Um, but they trained the majority of, of police in Panama. And so oh. our job was to come in, 
not necessarily with like an American perspective, but just like to come in and basically my job was to go there and, and teach them empathy. Right. Wow. <laughs> um, no, no small feat. Yeah. But it was, yeah. And I, I also wanted to do like, I toured a lot of stuff on the ground. So I went to, a, um, there was this, this nationwide gang prevention program mm. where they, they would go into, um, I went to two different barrios. Um, and it's this, this like super strict program where the kids basically are paid to quit. Um, they get food and medicine vouchers, um, like a certain dollar amount a week, I think. Um, but they're also required to go through all kinds of like drug and alcohol counseling and just general mm-hmm. therapy. Um, I think they're given medication, um, but that might fall under the health voucher. Right. Um, they go through job training stuff. And uh, there's also a, because it's Central America, right? There's a very um, heavy religious component to it. Um, so right. there's um, some sort of service every day that they have to go to. And if the kids miss mm-hmm. one session, they're out. And it's like, no, yeah, no excuses. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. Um, you're out um, and you can't come back. <laughs> and so Jeez. it's super strict. So I wonder and, how many students are they getting through that program and how long is the program? Was it like months or weeks? It's months. When I was there, they had, they had placed over a thousand kids in jobs. Wow. Um, my first trip there, they took us to a barrio in, in Panama city where they said, if I had gone in there three months earlier, I would have been killed on site. Uh, and I'm in there. Uh, and I had, I had, we had met with the vice minister of justice that day. So I was in like a suit. <laughs> and so like, and I'm big. And so like, I stood out like a sore thumb right. um, and they were organizing a soccer tournament among all these former gang members. And the guys running it were like, yeah, this is really intense because you have kids who used to be on rival gangs playing on the same team and playing against each other sometimes. And so there's like all this possibility of things getting really ugly and it doesn't happen because the kids make it to that point have bought in all all the way into the program. Um, And yeah, I got to see two of those sites. And so that's my biggest disappointment for the program falling apart was that like the teaching thing or whatever. Like I wanted to get down there right. and students down there and say like, we're going to go do this. Like, like hardcore. Look at how the world can change. Yeah. yeah. This hardcore yeah. stuff in a country where there's still like a lot of anti-American sentiment. Right. Yeah. I yeah. think students from Northeastern PA uh, and the culture here needed to see, like I saw graffiti. I wish I could have gotten pictures of it too. I'm um, just driving in the buses around Panama city, but there was one of the American flag being ripped in half. Um, there's another one of, uh, it was like a, I think it was like a, almost like a World War II kind of GI with a bazooka and it was firing, firing like a rocket, but out of the back was like the American flag and dollar signs and, and stuff mm. like that. So this like pretty intense, um, yeah. bitterness still, um, towards the Imperial side of stuff, which again, right. like most, which makes sense. most college students don't really think of the United States as yeah. an Imperial Right, right. So being able to do gang uh, uh, rehab stuff in a country where some people are still very pro-American and and speak English and are happy to work with you. And Panama City, honestly, I mean, there was 
McDonald's and, and everything there, right? It, it, does, it almost doesn't feel like um, you're in another country. But then yeah. seeing like this, um, like knowing there's this hardcore, like anti-American resentment simmering underneath over over the canal and and a lot of the politics around the canal is was a super interesting experience that I wish that some of my my students would have had that chance to to do. But yeah, um, wow, that sounds insane in a good way. <laughs> yeah. Um, the first time Hopefully we were there, you know, more connections. Yeah. If yeah. not there in other places. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, unfortunately it's work that is, that needs to be done in a lot of places and that yeah. kind of like empathy building. Yes. Especially um, now, but everywhere it's just, there's a, a huge need for it. So, but anyway, <laughs> nobody wants to listen to my, my nonsense. Um, no, it's fascinating. Um. So I'm not sure how we got off on that. Maybe we're talking about... Uh, I don't know either. We're just talking about students. You know how it goes. When you start talking about like just academia and like what you encounter in the classroom. That's where we were. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so I think the last thing that I want to ask you about, um, one of the things that I'm, I'm trying to do more on the podcast side is to uh, have folks think about engaging with the public more. Um, and so, uh, people who aren't familiar with your work, um, and, and maybe new to poetry or new to reading and writing poetry, um, what would you want them to take away about who you are as a, as a poet and as a writer? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think, you know, some of the things that we've already talked about, um, I think, you know, we'll get back to me in a second, but if they're just not familiar with poetry at all, you know, if they feel like, okay, you know, I had to read Oh Captain, My Captain 18 times in high school. I still didn't get it. You know, I hated it. Um, you know, and that's their only association um, with poetry is kind of like somebody beating into their head that there's a right answer, you know, on a standardized test, which is not what poetry is about. Um, I'd just like them to know like poets, especially contemporary poets, are writing about everything you can imagine in as many ways as you can imagine them. So literally go to Google, type in poetry about uh, blues musicians in the early 20th century and Tyumba Jess, Lead Belly and Olio are gonna pop up. And my God, are those crazy reads, right? Um, crazy reads formally um, because he's doing all kinds of cool stuff with form. He's got, you know, conjoined twins talking to each other on the page and their poems look the way the conjoined twins would. You know, he's got Lead Belly arguing it out with Lomax. I mean, like, you know, th so there's there's poets that are taking on, you know, I've, I've just seen um, A. Van Jordan, another poet that I interviewed in the book, um, his second book, Magnolia, is making a comeback because it's about this woman in the 1930s, Magnolia Cox, who made it all the way to second place in the National Spelling Bee in the freaking 1930s. You know, we just had this wonderful little 14-year-old girl win the uh, National Spelling Bee. It's the first, you know, young Black woman we've seen. Um, and so, but people were like, look at what people are writing about. And that book 
is tracing her life. It's full of love poems. You know, she gets to meet Bojangles and they give her all of this like wisdom about how to move in the space between black and white, um, you know, and, and then, you know, she ends up kind of destitute. She ends up living as a domestic. So traces, you know, the lives of the lower class, the middle class, class issues, along with racial issues, along with all the, so, I mean, there's so much nuance in poetry. So if people are looking for something cool, it's out there. Don't think it's only, you know, the stuff you were given in high school. Um, now, my poems in particular, um, I think I'm a person that ruminates on spirituality a lot. I'm a person that, you know, often comes back um, to love because I'm sappy and I think it's useful. But, you know, good love poems are hard to find. So, you know, check them out when you can. I'm also somebody, um, like I said, I'm nosy. So I love putting people's business in the street. So if you want to know something that's happening behind closed doors, um, there, there was a poem in my first book that used to be titled Why I Wasn't Invited to the Last Fish Fry. Um, and now it's just called Fish Fry. So you can go find it and find out why I got kicked out. I mean, you know, those kinds of wrestling against uh, family history and family lore and what you know and who you've become as the truth teller and truth seeker. You know, those are the kinds of things that I, I continue to hold true to in, in my own work. And so if people are looking for that kind of stuff. That's what they can find when they're looking for me. I got nothing to say. I have no, I have no, no snappy response to that. Um, I did want to ask you though, as um, sure. I know that was going to be the last question, but this is, this will be the last question. Um, sure. We have to talk about the program, right? We have to talk about sure. um, the Maslow family uh, program and creative writing. Yeah. So I know that at least as of this recording, um, you are, still a, a fairly new faculty member um but yeah. I'm, I'm wondering um what are you what are you excited about uh, at, at Wilkes and and what is the what is the program meant to you so far well let me just say I'm still excited about everything because I can't you know COVID has upended our lives so I still have not even been to the Wilkes campus I've been teaching online and as a remote faculty member I joined um, the faculty, you know, just this kind of COVID was taking off. So in these last two semesters. Um, and so what I'm most excited about is actually like seeing the campus and being with people in person, which I hope we'll be able to do at the next residency. Um, what I've loved doing thus far um, is really thinking about one's trajectory as a writer and writing being a journey, not just being a series of drafts, right? Like, so what Wilkes does really well um, that, you know, I'm hoping other MFA programs will start thinking about as well, is they help students think about not only, you know, getting a draft to a place where it's reasonable and will be useful to the public, but then what do you do after that? Right. So many programs just stop after, OK, great, you know, write a book and then what? <laughs> right. Like, how do you make it an yeah. actual yeah. book? So the publishing track, I think, is terribly interesting, something that Wilkes does um, really well. Having us share our own personal trajectories and journeys with students is something that, you know, I, I've done a few craft talks and a few uh, talks about poetry in my own um, writing at Wilkes. And that, that's when I get the most emails and phone calls and I've had Zoom calls with students um, because they just want to kind of soak up that information. And that's what I was craving in my MFA and beyond. You know, poetry is one thing, but what about the pobiz? Like, what is that, right? So that's something that I'm really conscious about continuing to take the students and the part of the program that gets me the most excited, quite frankly. 
yeah, I mean, that's something that's special about Wilkes. And I, I think it's yeah. something I'm going to say so many times in these interviews um, is that our, our MFA program, in terms of just comparing it to other, not just other MFAs, but other grad schools, right? Yeah. Uh, we are really a unicorn. That's right. <laughs> in a lot Absolutely. of ways. Um, and I, I can't say enough good things about what Wilkes has meant. Um, yeah. But thank you so much for your time, Ramika. I really, really appreciate it. Of course, this was so much fun. Thank you for asking us and for doing all this work. For more on tenure tracks, please go to untenured.space to access our archives or go to patreon.com slash untenured to help support us.